Okay, let's try Lamentations one more time. All right, chapter 3. I said I was going to use it for the month of October. And this is the last Sunday in October for us uh, to spend in the book of Lamentations. And so we're going to look at it again. I hope it's been an encouragement to you, though it is a very challenging book. Uh, There are some heavy, heavy sections in this book. And the whole context of it is heavy. It's a book that came out of the ashes of a disaster. And it was brought on themselves. We talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. They had been warned, right? For a long time they were warned about that. And they would not heed God's direction. I just pray, folks, that uh, when we study God's Word and He tells us what we need to know, that we're quick to respond. I wouldn't want to be like these folks who just ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. And then the day came when the destruction hit them, and it was devastating. And that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a terrible, terrible scene. And yet, in the middle of it, chapter 3, 22, 23, 24, those verses are precious to us, and they are there for a reason. And that's why we're looking at them. So join me there in chapter 3, 22, 23, and 24. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. You've got those two words in front of you? Never? Twice, right? Never cease. Never fail. Never. Never. Mark that. That's important. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Lord, we're going to look at this section again today and ask that you might guide us in it. We're talking about you and who you are and what you've done. And we, of all people on this earth, ought to be able to testify to the faithfulness of our God. That ought to be the first thing in our hearts and the first thing on our lips every single morning. Our God is faithful. And I pray, Lord, that you might have impact in hearts today. If we have been stubborn, if we have been negligent of your word, if we have been careless with it, if we have been callous to it, Lord, you're the only one who could change a heart. And for everyone in this room today, we just ask that you might be at work. Do your work, your great work. The work that never fails, always, always accomplishes what you desire, and it shows your compassion. And we thank you, Lord, for this, and ask for your mercy today, your help, your grace in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. The topic has been where to find hope. And it's kind of fun. I I say fun. This is what I mean. But here, I have... But I was going to do this section. I'd study it through for you and everything else. I was actually three-quarters of the way finishing up the very first sermon on where to find hope, and I found it was missing. That's when I discovered the Septuagint didn't have those verses. And it just kind of fell right into my lap, and it amazed me because I wasn't expecting that. Uh, it just 
to me, it was a fascinating aspect of this study, something that I learned yet, uh, that when we're looking for hope, um, it's Christ who we should look to. It is Christ. Most people do not see hope in this book, especially if they take the center out like the Septuagint did. They don't see hope at all in any any of the sections. The context is 586 B.C. The, the issue was that Babylon has come now for the third time to go against Jerusalem, and they decided at that point they were done with patience. They were done with patience. And in case you're wondering, well, was that Babylon, or was that God taking advantage of a situation to make such a message? No, God said even before Babylon came, that Babylon would be my servant. And they will accomplish what I have them to do here. And he already told them Babylon was coming. This was not new to God. This was something that the people had chosen to ignore. They, patience had wore out. And now Jerusalem, if you just picture it in your mind, is nothing but rubble and ashes. There's smoke rising up. Everything that used to be is gone the people have been carried off for the most part or killed or, or standing on the outside of the city watching it. That's where we find Jeremiah. That's where we find the record of this book coming at us. Now, I'm going to remind you a couple of things here that we've talked about for three weeks already. And it's just simply to, to help you, if you haven't been here for our study, to help you catch up to where we are right now. Maybe you forgot everything Pastor has said for the last three weeks, and you just need a reminder. I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that. But it would just take a moment to simply state that there is a place to find hope. There is a place to find hope. Because the big question is, where do we find it? And Jeremiah was looking for it in his day, and so were his people. And we have people today that still look for hope. They've been looking in a lot of places, but there's only one place to find it. Only one. And when you look into this passage, it says in verse 21, Jeremiah says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. It's the Lord, His loving kindness that never ceases. It's His compassion that never fails. It's His faithfulness that is so great. You see, the whole focus of all of this comes down to the character and to the actions of our God. That's what it comes down to. It's not in the circumstances. For we can spend a lot of time on the circumstances here. We could talk about the reasons and the cause. We could talk about the destruction. We could talk about all these things. Picture it in our mind. Try to put on their sandals. You wouldn't want to. But try to live in that day and figure out what that's like. We can look at all the disaster. But the passage says, no, look to the Savior. He's the one that the focus is on. He is the one in his compassion and in his action and in his character that we must focus on. That's why when I I discovered the Septuagint was missing all that, you might as well toss the book out. If you're not going to put that in the middle of it, what else do you have? There is no hope outside of him. There is no hope. So we walked through that a little bit, and we found out that uh, the primary reason for that missing in the Septuagint was this little problem called, oops. They were writing it down. 
They were recording it. They turned their head. They came back to the text and they missed three verses. Have you ever do that before? Probably. You know, the other thing you might end up doing is you fall asleep while you're reading. I don't know about you, but that's easy to do. Then you wake up and you're three verses down the page. You say, what happened? I used to set my, uh, my um, audio Bible to play. And there were times uh, that I had a great deal of trouble trying to sleep and my mind was bothering me. And I said, Lord, I'm going to put on my audio Bible. I'm going to put it right next to my pillow and I'm going to let it play. And I'm going to pick the longest book in the Bible. And Lord, if you don't mind, I'm going to fall asleep. You know why he blessed me over and over and over with that? Just in case you're wondering, it's great to fall asleep with the Lord talking. And he understood I was tired and I needed to rest. And he gives sleep to his beloved. I love that verse. And then when I woke up, guess what? Many chapters were already done. And I said, whew, that was a good sleep. Now, maybe that's what happened to our scribes. We were talking about that in Sunday school. How could 70 of them do it all at the same time and miss the same passage? We don't know yet, but there was a problem. But that was something we were discovering as we went through this, is that while we will take a passage like that and say there was a reason for that and it was a mistake, they fell asleep, maybe they turned their head for a minute or something, we have those excuses for all kinds of sins. We always look for the way to minimize it. But God never does. God never does. There were things that were big that brought about this destruction. There were things that were little that brought about this destruction. Some people say, what was the biggest thing that God punished them for because he took them out of land for 70 years? What was it that... Brought all that about. What was the biggest thing that God said it was? Do you know what it was? They had ignored the Sabbath. Really? Yeah. Every seventh year, they were supposed to let the land set. Right? That was the rule. God just told them to do that. Well, they didn't do it. And God says, I'm going to let the land rest for 70 years to make up for it. And that's what he said. That's why you're out of the land. You disobeyed even the smallest of my commandments. And we know they disobeyed a lot of big ones too. Because God does never, He never minimizes sin. He never minimizes sin. Matter of fact, we already talk about His penalty. The penalty for sin is death. And God will never change His mind about that because He will never change His mind about what His Son did for you. He paid the price, right? Jesus Christ paid the price. God is not going to change his mind. No matter what or who stands up and says, Lord, you need to renegotiate this deal. You need to think it through in modern culture. We don't think that way anymore. God says, that's it. He will never change it. The fact that you need a Savior, it's Jesus Christ. That you can only come to the Father but through him. That's it. That he died on the cross for your sins, that's it. He's not going to come again to do it. He did it once, and that was sufficient in God's book. That's all that he set up. That's all that he said. There's no plan two. There's no plan three. There's no alterations. You can't change it. God's serious about sin, and he's serious about his son. Those two things are established. He will never change. That's what these folks learned, too. 
God was serious about sin. It wasn't a mistake. They had to come to understand, you know, God, when he said that my, my faithfulness is great, my loving kindness never stops, my compassion never ceases, do you realize that that was going in full force the whole time the city was coming down in ashes? That was his compassion? He said, whoa, yes. Why did God do that? To show he was honest and true and faithful and to show them they needed him. Desperately needed him. What a way to get their attention. What a way to do it. We've talked through those chapters. We talked about the price tag of sin. The sticker shock, I called it. We gave 55 things that they lost from chapter number 2. They lost because of their sin in that destruction day. And some of you took notes and then you memorized it, right? No? It came down to one word. They lost what? Everything. There's the easy one to memorize. They lost everything. But we went through a list last week. 55 different things that they lost. Because sin doesn't touch anything without destroying it. It always will destroy. It's not your friend. It will sugarcoat it. It will tell you, this is great, this is good. You know, Satan offered uh, Eve, remember? Look, it looks beautiful. I bet it tastes great. Take one bite. Matter of fact, you're going to gain from that. That's what he said. You're going to gain from that because you don't know what that fruit is going to open your eyes to. Do you know why he offered her when you step back and look at it? It not only opened her eyes to life, but it opened her eyes to what? Death. And which one did she already have? So what did she actually get? She didn't get anything good from that. She only got bad. Only bad. He said, it would be good for you. It wasn't at all. That's a lie sin always carries with it. People fall for it all the time. But think of the awful price tag of it. Everything that's lost, it never has a positive result. It never brings the pleasures it promises. It is a slave maker. It is. It is a murderer. It's a thief. It will take everything you have. Sin has a way of doing that. And so God made it clear. When you sin, you lose it all. The soul that sins will die. It will die. And the wages of sin is death. We talked about that last week. Because that's what we deserve. Even on this day, this calendar day, that's what we deserved. Thank God for His mercy. Because the wages are what you deserve. But the kindness of our God the compassion of our God, the portion that He gives to us, is that. It's His gift. It's His gift. Because we don't deserve those things, but He's given it to us. Sin takes everything. Takes everything. But Jeremiah could stand there and see everything gone and say, I have nothing left. Nothing left. I have nothing at all. But I do have something that was given to me. The Lord is my portion. Verse 24. 
That is, that is usually not included in our thoughts when we talk about this because it's not in the song. Great is thy faithfulness ends with verse 23. Verse 24 is what we have is the Lord. And if you have the Lord, you have everything you need. You have everything you need. We know that, don't we? We believe that. The Lord is my portion. Those are five wonderful words we should learn. The Lord is my portion. That's my everything. That's my everything. Now, I want to walk you into verse 24 right now, this morning. And look again at the phrase that follows that. And usually does, I check most texts, just because I know some of the ones you carry out there. And almost all of them says, says my soul. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. You ever talk to yourself? Oh no, you're admitting it too. Talk to yourself. You ever talk to your soul? What's that? If Jeremiah's eyes could talk, they would talk of destruction that it sees. Right? That's what his eyes would tell you. If his hands could talk, they would feel the rubble and the shattered boards, the broken rocks, the hot stones. If his hands could talk. If his nose could talk, that smell. Oh, that terrible smell. Burning smell. There's probably a lot worse smells than that around there, too. If his ears could talk. And all the sounds that go with such a calamity. The sounds of troops, the sounds of things crashing, the things busting apart. The sounds that you have of, of wailing. The sounds that you have of the wounded. The sounds that you have of people screaming in pure panic. If his ears could talk. If Jeremiah's tongue would talk. I know it could. But what would it say? Well, tongues do more than just say. They taste too. And his tongue, if he said, what do you taste? I taste bitterness, he says. It's earlier in this passage, just a few verses up, verse 19. I taste bitterness. I taste wormwood. You ever wonder what wormwood was? Say, what is, what is a wormwood? I, I looked it up just so I could tell you accurately what I found. A woody shrub with a bitter, aromatic taste used as an ingredient in medicine. Now you know. Why does it taste so nasty? They put wormwood in it. You say, really? I don't know if they still do. But of all things, you know what they say it's for? It's to help with your digestive system and your appetite. And I'm thinking, how? It seems to me it'd make me lose mine. Wormwood, that sounds terrible. It, it's, it's a picture of 
the state of bitterness or grief. When they're trying to explain a word and trying to go to its ultimate kind of depiction, they would use a word like wormwood. And I said, oh, that stuff's terrible. When I was a kid, we had this, this thing that my mom gave us when we had a sore throat. Now, I don't know what it was. I think she dug it up from a tree out in the woods in West Virginia. I have no idea because she always had this bottle thing, and she called it yellow root. And we said, I don't know what that is, but that is nasty. I saw the look on my brother and sister's face when they took it. If, if you could fold your head inside, it was something like that. And I said, I'm never, never going to taste that stuff. And honestly, I never have. I never told my mom when I had a sore throat. <laughs> I thought it would be better to have a sore throat than take the medicine. I saw that stuff, yellow root, and I said, what is that? But it should have had a skull and crossbones on the cover of it. Where she got it, I don't know, but she, that was her cure. For, she, didn't, she wasn't always that way with stuff, but she had that, I know. Bitterness. Extreme bitterness. If his tongue could tell what it did. What if his soul could talk? What if his soul could talk? You know, we tend to reason with our mind. This is why this happened. This is what we, you know, if we had only done this, we, we wouldn't have done that. This is what we'll do next time to avoid this. You know, we reason out things. Accident scenes always have a, somebody there reasoning. Now, this is why this happened, this da-da-da-da-da, right? That's what they do. We tend to respond when there's such a terrible thing happening. It's our heart more times than not that has to do something or say something or respond in some way. And sometimes it's, it's pretty extreme there too. We respond with our heart. It could be very, very expressive. If we respond with our emotions, which is not uncommon, that we respond that way. But what does your soul say? What does your soul say? Notice verse 24. It says that one little phrase. The Lord is my portion. Your head's not always going to want to say that. Your heart will resist it because our hearts are, are deceptive. And they're sinful. And they don't want to confess things. Especially when it makes us look like we're not doing it. Our emotions usually don't go down this road either. They all just fly to whatever the, the human will wants to do, and it's not a pretty picture. But what does your soul say? We try to say, no, you be quiet for a while. Don't, don't tell me. Don't be spiritual. What else is a soul supposed to do? It's a spiritual thing. And it stands up and says, listen, your head says this, your eyes say this, your ears say this, your heart says this. But I say, the Lord is your portion. That's significant. When everything else is denying what's going on around it, it speaks up very clearly. The Lord is my portion. Look at the rest of what it says. Verse 24. Therefore, therefore, I have hope. That therefore leads to your final conclusion. When all that is thought through, all that is explained,
explained, all that is experienced, all that is emoted, all that is endured, it comes down to a therefore. Now what? That's when your soul speaks. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. You know, that comes many times, a therefore, at the end of the hardest, hardest of lessons. The therefore is coming. I think Jeremiah's soul can tell us an awful lot here. It certainly has gone through a lot in the first place. Sometimes, sometimes when we're going through things like this is depicting before us, you say, well, that's the worst thing you could ever go through. There was a sermon like that once. The worst thing was sinners in the hands of an angry God. You've heard that title before. I've never read it to you all the way through. That'd be a great sermon someday, huh? comes from the book of Hebrews. Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, 31. This is what it says. Listen carefully. How much severer punishment do you think he would deserve who is trampled underfoot the Son of God, who is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will, will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Terrifying. And you know who picked that up and wrote a sermon on it? Jonathan Edwards. That was back in the uh, 1700, or 1700s. Jonathan Edwards preached what one commentator said, the most terrifying sermon ever preached. Woo! About 1741, it brought about what we call the Great Awakening. There were a lot of people who responded to it. You say, well, you know, people talked about that all the time. I've never read it. Maybe you've said that. I've never read that. Maybe I should read that sometime. Let me read to you a portion, can I? You have no choice. (laughs) Here it goes. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean His sovereign pleasure, His arbitrary arbitrary will, restraining by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God mere had to, had in the least degree, or in any respect whatsoever, any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire if the wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the condemned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ever ready ever ready ever mo- every moment to singe it and burn it asunder, and you have no interest in your mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Woo! 
That's just a paragraph or so out of many pages. I thought about that, and I thought, well, you know, I've heard sermons of that nature before. I've read them before. Uh, Charles Spurgeon gave one that would scare you to pieces. It was the first recorded sermon of his when he became a pastor at 19 years of age. The New Park Street Chapel, he became the pastor of, and they recorded this sermon, and this is one paragraph after it, or in it. Every threatening of God, as well as every promise, shall be fulfilled. Talk of decrees. I will tell you of a decree. He that believeth not shall be condemned. That is a decree and a statute that can never change. Be as good as you please. Be as moral as you can. Be as honest as you will. Walk as uprightly as you may. There stands the unchangeable threatening. He that believeth not shall be condemned. What sayest thou to this moralist? Or thou wishest that thou couldst alter it and say, He that does not live a holy life shall be condemned. That will be true, but it does not say so. It says, He that believeth not. Here is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, but you cannot alter it. You must believe or be condemned, says the Bible. And mark, that threat of God is an unchangeable as God himself. And when a thousand years of hell's torments have passed away, you shall look on high and see written in burning letters of fire, He that believeth not shall be condemned. But Lord, I am condemned. Nevertheless, it says, shall be still. And when a million ages have rolled along and you are exhausted by your pain and agonies, and you turn up your eyes to still read, shall be condemned, unchanged, unaltered. And when you have thought that eternity must have spun out its last thread, and every particle of that which we call eternity must have run out, and you shall see it written up there, shall be condemned. Oh, terrific thought. How dare I utter it, but I must. You must be warned, sirs, lest you come into this place of torment. You must be told rough things, for if God's gospel is not a rough thing, and the law is not a rough thing, Mount Sinai is a rough thing. Woe to the watchman that warns not the ungodly. God is unchanging in his threatening. Beware, O sinner, for it is fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. David knew what that was to some degree. David knew what that was. In First Chronicles 21, he was given the option. After he had sinned and taken a census and against God's will, uh, God came to him through the prophet and gave him these choices. You ready? Gad, the prophet, shows up. And he says in verse 10, this is the Lord speaking to Gad, Go and speak to David and say, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them. That will I do to you. So Gad, Gad came to David and said, Thus says the Lord, take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemy overtakes you or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Which would you have chosen? Even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory. Now, therefore, consider what I said, and I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. And do not let me fall into the hand of man. 
The end result of that story is that 70,000 people died from the sword of the Lord. How would you like to sleep after that? But he said, I would rather be in the hand of the Lord in the midst of wrath than any place else. Than any place else. Psalm 31, this is what David wrote. In verse 7, 8, 9, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. You have not given me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity. My body is wasted away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances and all who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. They counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. There is no other place to be, folks, than in the hand of our God. No other place to be. David knew that. Jeremiah knew that. As he wrote in Jeremiah, here it comes, Jeremiah chapter 1, way back there, when God called him, this is what God said. The word of the Lord came to me in verse 4 and said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I am but a youth. And the Lord said to him, Do not say, I am a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then he adds this in verse 14 and 15. And the Lord said to me, Out of the north the evil will break forth on all inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. They will come, and they will set each one his stone in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls round about it and against all the cities of Judah, I will pronounce my judgment on them concerning all their wickedness where they have forsaken me. They have offered sacrifices to other gods. They worship the works of their own hands. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them which I command you. Do not be dismayed or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today a fortified city a pillar of iron and walls of bronze against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to the princes, to its people, to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. Jeremiah saw the worst things eyes could see. He watched it happen on this earth. He could see it. He can touch it. He can hear it. He can taste it. He knew what was in his heart. He knew what was on his mind. He knew what was in his emotions. And still it was his soul that had to speak. To him, being in the hands of an angry God was far better than being dropped by him. 
Therefore, I have hope, he said. There was a sermon written by a man named John Dunn. 1500s. Long time ago. He wrote this poem, sermon. And this is how it goes. When God's hand is bent to strike, it is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God, but to fall out of the hands of the living God is a horror beyond any expression, beyond our imagination. That God should let my soul fall out of his hand into a bottomless pit and roll an unmovable stone over it and leave it to that which it finds there, and it shall find that there, which it never imagined till it came thither. And never more think of that soul. Never have more to do with it. That of all the province of God that studies the life of every weed and worm and ant and spider and toad and viper, that should never, never any beam flow out upon me. That that God who looked upon me when I was nothing and called me when I was not as though I had been out of the womb in depth of darkness will not even look upon me now when through a miserable and a banished and a condemned creature, yet I am his creature still and contribute something to his glory, even in my condemnation. But that God, who hath often looked upon me in my foulest uncleanness, and when I had shut out the eye of the day and the sun and the eye of the night, the candle and the eyes of all the world, the curtains and the windows and the doors, yet you saw me and saw me in mercy, and making me to see that you saw me, and sometimes brought me to a present remorse, and for a time to a forbearing of that sin, should so turn himself from me now to his glorious saints and angels, that no saint or angel or Christ Jesus himself should ever pray him to look toward me, never remember him that there was such a soul, that that God who has often said to my soul, Why will you die? And so often sworn to my soul, As the Lord liveth, I will not have thee die. But live will neither let me die, nor let me live. But die an everlasting life, and live an everlasting death. And that God who, when he could not get into me by standing and knocking by his ordinary means of entering, by his word, his mercies, hath applied his judgment and shook this house, this body, with palsies and set the house on fire with fever and delirium and frightened the masters of the house, my soul, with horrors and heavy apprehensions and made such an entrance into me that that God should frustrate all his own purposes and practices upon me and leave me and cast me away as though I cost him nothing, that that God at last should let my soul go away as a smoke, as a vapor, as a bubble, and yet that soul cannot be a smoke, a vapor, or a bubble, but must lie in darkness as long as the Lord of light is light itself and never spark of that light reached to my soul, where hell is not paradise, where brimstone is not amber, what gnashing of teeth is not comfort, what gnawing of the worm is not tickling, what torment is not a marriage bed to this condemnation, to be secluded eternally, eternally, eternally from the sight of God. Wow. Have you ever talked to your soul? What would it say? What would it say? Where have you found your hope, folks? Where have you found it? 
our little study of Lamentations that we've been going through. You didn't know it was such a potent book, did you? Man, is it incredible? We only did three chapters. There's two more to go. We've only brought to the surface what we know about our hope. But we could sum it up in a simple phrase. Our hope is found in the character and the actions of our Lord. That's the only place you'll find it. In Him. In Him. In Him. He is the one that holds you in His hands. I would rather be in His hands in any circumstance than not in His hands at all. Jeremiah stands in his hands. He says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. Folks, if you've never responded to his mercy or his compassion, you have the opportunity today. He hasn't dropped you. He has brought you to a place right now to hear that he is faithful. He will keep his promise. And his promise is so simple for you to understand. He says, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. That's his promise. You believe in Jesus and you have everlasting life through him and him alone. That's a promise of a God who is faithful every single moment. And he extends one more time to each of us and says, what does your soul say? What does your soul say? I hope that all of us here today would say, well, the Lord is my portion. That's what my soul says. Therefore, I have hope. If you can't say that today, I would love to talk to you. Grab the person sitting next to you and say, explain this better. I want to know. Because today is the day you can learn of this hope. That's a, that's a beauty of this whole passage in front of us. Because everything else is plain old ugly, isn't it? But our Savior, what a beautiful Savior we have. Because that's what we deserved. But hope is what He gave us. Heavenly Father, what a glorious thing You have done. We've gone through some pretty heavy passages and some pretty heavy thoughts over the years about what it is to be under your wrath. That's not the thing we often think of. We let our minds go other places. We we don't contemplate those things. Those are things for the soul to talk about. And we had the soul speak today. And I pray, Lord, that uh, it has penetrated to where we need to respond If there's somebody among us today who's never received Christ as Savior, may this be the day. And Lord, for those of all of us, perhaps, who know you, we have hope, and we thank you, Lord, for it. We have a Savior who saved us from the wrath of God. We thank you for it. May we have very thankful hearts today. In light of what you have done and who you are, we give you the praise. You are our hope. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.